Turn in your Bibles. My name's Dave. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't got a chance to know you yet, it's just thrilled to have you with us and we'd love to connect. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 25 today. So if you brought your Bible, pull it out. I really want you to have it. If not, if you didn't bring your Bible, it's okay. There happens to be one right in front of you in the pew rack. And, I, and today's one of those days, I just, just grab it. Just go ahead and do it. Don't resist. Just look forward. Don't be prideful. Sometimes it's awesome to look at the screens. Sometimes you can dial it up on your phone. But every now and then, just to have the book and to flip the pages, I think is a valuable thing. So if you are in the Pew Bible, you are going to be on page 806. We're going to be in a wonderful story today. We're in a little two-week series we're calling Parables. And for these two weeks, what we really wanted to do was just look at the stories of Jesus and a couple stories that come, came right out of his mouth and talk about what that means for us as his followers. And so as we, as we get ready to dive into this, this text, I want to give you a little context. I want to let you know where it comes from, like where in Jesus' life we are, because this is a big week. Uh, this story is told by Jesus on Tuesday afternoon, the Tuesday right before the Friday when Jesus is going to be crucified. But today, Tuesday, has been a long day. Jesus has been in the city, he's been in Jerusalem, and he's been in long theological debates with the religious leaders. And now Jesus and his disciples are going home. They're traveling the road back to Bethany where they will stay for the night. And this road was about a two mile uh, journey. It went out the city on the, uh, to, the, to the east and over a hill called the Mount of Olives. You see it there on the map, kind of a, a rough sketch of how this would have looked. Um, and from the Mount of Olives, you could look back and you would have just a spectacular view of the city of Jerusalem. This is kind of a rendering of what artists think it would have looked like in the first century when Jesus was alive. And so from the Mount of Olives, you could look back over the city. And the scriptures tell us this, that on the way back to Bethany that night, Jesus and his disciples stop and they sit down and they strike up a conversation. And in this conversation on this hill, Jesus begins to tell them about the future of the kingdom of God, how one day he will come back again and then everything will be set right. He says, one day I'll return and then evil and suffering and injustice will no longer exist. But, but until then, Jesus says, here is how you must live. Here is how you must live between now and the end of the age, between now and when I come back to make all things right. And as a part of this teaching, he tells this story from Matthew chapter 25. At that time, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. 
But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the ones also, later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. You know, as we prepared and approached this little two-week segment of the summer, I told you last week I had kind of a couple blank slots and I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. If I'm really honest, I decided a number of weeks back, hey, for these two weeks, it's summer, it's Oregon, people are on vacation, they're wearing short sleeves and shorts and enjoying like, you know, vitamin D rays entering their body. I'm just gonna keep it light. I'm just gonna, let's go back and let's just do two nice, sweet, easy teachings from Jesus. And so I started searching. You know what you find? Those don't really exist. Like when Jesus, we kind of picture Jesus as the feel good guy. You know, most of the time when Jesus talks and teaches, there's challenge, there's rebuke, there's a sense of conviction. And so we find ourselves in this passage today. And it's a passage where Jesus, I think, talks to his followers, specifically church people. He's talking to his followers and he's saying, here's some things to remember. Here's some things to, to never forget, to be very aware of. And last week he told us some things, and this week he'll tell us a few more. In, in this passage, I believe he highlights how to wisely wait in a broken world. How to wisely wait in a broken world. Now, let me set the scene for you here because the story Jesus tells um, is a first century Jewish wedding. Uh, it's a scene that would have been very familiar to his disciples. They understood everything he was saying. It was familiar language and imagery to them, maybe not so much to us. So I'm gonna walk us through it. It's a first century Jewish wedding scene. How many of you have been to a wedding this summer? All right, a few of you. How many of you are going to a wedding this summer? How many of you are planning a wedding this summer? I know there's some here. How many of you are paying for such wedding? Um, well, this is a Jewish wedding, and a Jewish wedding was a little different than our wedding. They had a little different rhythm. In fact, there were three phases to a Jewish wedding, three elements, three stages. And the first phase was called engagement. So there are some similarities. And the engagement was the selection process where the families of the bride and the families of the groom worked out the details of the marriage. This was an arranged marriage culture. And so the kids had opinions, the kids had thoughts, the kids even had some input, but it was ultimately up to the parents. And as a parent of a couple of teenagers now, I just have to say... Let's get back to the Bible, you know? Like, actually, the groom's father, here's how it would work. The groom's father would approach the potential bride's father and say something like, you know, we would like our son to marry your daughter. What do you think? And if he was at all interested, they would negotiate. They would work out the details, including what was called the bride price, the amount of money the groom would have to give the bride's family, specifically her father, in exchange for her hand in marriage. Again, having two daughters, I love these ideas. 
Luis, let's get back to the scriptures, you know? Luis had a bunch of sons, but he didn't pay anything. Unbiblical, Luis. Anyway, um, that's another message. Then, once all this was worked out, once all the engagement details and the bride price was worked out, the couple was officially engaged. Phase one complete. Then, shortly after engagement, the second phase of the, of the marriage was called betrothal. And betrothal was the official marriage ceremony. The couple would come together before just a very, very small group, a group of very close friends and a few family, and they would, much like we do, take their vows and make binding promises to each other. They would declare their commitments publicly. This was the moment when they officially entered the marriage covenant. And now at this phase of the game, at the phase called betrothal, the bride price would be paid, the price negotiated before would be handed over, and the couple would now be officially husband and wife. So if during this period, during the betrothal period, one of them were to die, the other would be referred to as a widow or widower, right, exactly. But, but here's something that's unique, a little different. No sexual relationship was permitted during this betrothal period, which lasted up to a year or more. And during that year, that year of betrothal, the woman would remain in her father's house while the husband would go and prepare himself. He would prepare his life to be a married man. And so they would be separate for this time. He'd go and he'd get his finances in order. He'd go and he'd dive into and establish his career. He'd find or more likely build a place to live for he and his wife. And most often what would happen is that he would simply put an addition onto the home of his father. He would go back to his family home where he lived and he would begin to work to build like an attached home, another home right there on the family property. Now friends, this phase of the marriage was so serious, this betrothal phase where they're together but apart, it was so serious that for a betrothal to be broken, there would have to be divorce. By the way, a little Bible trivia, just to warm you up for next week. Who is the famous couple that when we first meet them in the Bible is right smack dab in the middle of this phase of marriage? Yeah, Mary and Joseph. When Mary gets pregnant with baby Jesus, she and Joseph are right in the middle of betrothal. And now you understand why it's such a scandalous deal. Listen to this from Matthew chapter one. It's like a little Christmas in July for you guys today. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, what's, what's the author saying? He's saying before she moved in with him, before they lived together, before they had sex, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now that would have been a problem, right? For Joseph. It was. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. You see, they're married. They haven't had sex yet. And all of a sudden, she's pregnant. Scandal. The, the Christmas story begins with this kind of scandal. But that's another sermon. Come back in December. We'll cover it. Okay. All of this matters, though, today. Why? Because Jesus describes this phase of marriage, and he uses it 
as an analogy for his own return. He's saying the way a bride and her bridesmaids feel as they wait on the return of the groom, that's how you will experience waiting on me and my return. And in case, because this is foreign to you and you feel disconnected from those feelings, in case you're missing that, I want to just describe the scene for you. I want to invite you to dive with me into the vibe, the feelings of this couple and this bride, this bride and this groom and these, and these bridesmaids, as Jesus tells this story. Guys, imagine that you're 16 years old and you meet this girl. She is really cute. She's definitely out of your league. But you get word at Temple Beth Torah, the school you both attend, that she likes you. And at lunch one day, you get your courage up just a little bit and you talk just for a moment. And even though she's from the next village over, you start to get to know her. And then one day, one day in your fourth period class, the physics behind the exodus, you make this crazy bold move of giving your friend a note to give to her friend, to give to her. And on this note is one simple question. Do you like me? Well, the note makes its way across the room and as it returns, you unfold it to discover to your amazement and delight that she checked yes. So your heart is racing. You have never been happier. And instantly you start working on your parents, telling them, what, telling them what a nice girl she is and from what a good family she's from. Finally, your mom convinces your dad to go and talk to her dad about a marriage arrangement. And so he goes. And after what seems like an eternity, he returns home with some news. You're engaged. You are engaged. And the arrangements are made, and you show up to the local synagogue with a few family and friends to take your vows. And at the end of those vows, you will walk away from her, the girl you love, the girl you dream about, for an entire year. And she'll walk away from you. And it will be a year for you guys where you'll work harder than you've ever worked before to prepare for her and a year for you gals where you'll learn from your mother and you'll wait for him to someday come and take you home. But you don't know when. Now, check this out. This is pretty cool. Right after an engagement ceremony, right after you, are, you take your vows and were betrothed, right before a couple would part ways for this difficult, indefinite time of separation, a young husband would often turn to his new, young, beautiful bride, and as they parted, he might say something like this to her. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Wait for me, he would say to her. 
Trust that I am coming for you. Be ready, be prepared. Stay true and committed to our marriage vows. Live every day with the hope and certainty of our future together always on your mind because I will be back for you. But then months would go by, maybe even a year, a long year, a year where every day she waits, a year where every, every evening she wonders, could this be the night? Now, do you now have a sense for this moment? Can you feel the anticipation in the heart of this young girl? Do you sense and understand that every single time she hears far off music in the street, she wonders if maybe, just maybe, this might be the night that he is coming for her? You see, now, friends, we come to the final step, the last element of a Jewish marriage. And the final phase is called celebration or consummation. After a year or more of him working and her learning and waiting, dressed in special wedding garments, the bridegroom, the husband, and all of his companions, his homeboys, would walk in a long procession to the bride's home. And the idea here was that this was supposed to create a big scene. Most often in the Jewish world, the bridegroom and his party, they would come at night. And the goal was that the entire town would be woken up. They wanted everybody to wake up and know what was going on. Now, you imagine a small town out in the country of Galilee. You're an older couple. You've gone to bed You've turned, you know, you've read a little bit, you've kissed goodnight, you've rolled over, you're just about asleep, and all of a sudden, hooting and hollering teenagers come cruising through. What is going on? You know, oh, it must be the Thompson wedding. It's that time, right? That's it's kind of the vibe here. And then people would get up and put their robe on and then just get dressed and go out and join the party. That was what was happening. And, and so here comes the groom and all of his companions through the towns of the street, hooting and hollering, waking everybody up, and then waiting for the groom and his groomsmen were not just the bride and her family, but the bride's entire wedding party. You see, every bride would choose a group of unmarried girls to be in her wedding party. They would be sisters or cousins or close family friends, much like we do. And the word virgin in our passage today, I know it's, it's, a, it's a shocking word, right? Oh, we're talking about virgins today. This sounds racy. The, vir- the word virgin in our passage is just the Greek word parthenos, and it simply refers to this group of girls, This is a group of young, unmarried girls who are chosen to be the bridesmaids. And being a bridesmaid wasn't real tough. All you had to do was show up in the gowns you were given and carry a lamp. And a lamp actually looked a lot more like a tiki torch. It was just a long wooden stick with some cloths wrapped tightly at one end, dipped in oil, and then lit on fire. And so these bridesmaids would carry these lamps, these torches, and they would carry them through the streets to add to the atmosphere of the celebration, right? And these lamps would light the way as the party made their way, gathering people as they went from her house, where he would take her all the way back to the new home he had built for her. And then, this is just a little extra, when they arrived, because I like to make you feel awkward in church, when they arrived, they would have a giant wedding supper, 
The parents and friends would bless the couple, and then in a specially prepared nuptial chamber, the couple would go in and consummate the marriage for the first time with everybody waiting outside. (laughs) Talk about pressure. That also is another sermon. And then a week-long celebration would begin. And you would party for a week. Now, this is the scene that Jesus uses to describe the kingdom of heaven coming in all of its fullness when he returns someday. And so I want to just offer a few things this morning from this parable that I believe Jesus wants us to take with us, that he wants us to learn specifically about how to wait for him to come back, about how to wisely wait in a broken world. And I got for you this morning to kind of help you three F words, all appropriate for church. Three words that start with the letter F is a better way to say that. First one is this. We get it from verse five. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. This is actually where the conflict of the story arises. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. That that Greek word there, long time, is the word chronizo. It's where we get our word chronological. It simply means this. The time frame was stretched out. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and Jesus doesn't tell us what long time is, but we can imagine that it's been a year, and now 14 months, and then a year and a half, and 18 months, and we are closing in now on two years, and all she can think is, where the heck is he? Has he forgotten me? The time frame was stretched out. And that's key for us, because if you think about this story, if the time frame isn't stretched out, if the bridegroom comes back right away, then all the bridesmaids will be fine. Everything will go just as planned and everyone will have a torch and they'll have enough oil and like there'll be no real story to tell. But waiting for the return of the bridegroom, waiting for the party takes longer than they planned for. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and friends, I think Jesus wants us to ask this question. Is our faith Is our hope in Christ, is our relationship with God prepared for the long road ahead? Is your faith, is your relationship with God prepared for the long road ahead? Notice that Jesus in the story and throughout the scriptures, he doesn't say it won't be hard. He doesn't say don't be weary, right? He said, hey, I'm coming back for you, no problem, I'll come real soon, it's not gonna be that hard, waiting won't be tough, like, don't get weary. That's not what he says at all. Actually, I've heard sermons on this text called, don't fall asleep, Jesus is coming. No, read the story. All 10 bridesmaids fall asleep. Good, bad, or indifferent, they all fall asleep. They are all weary at some point. The message here is not don't get weary. The message here is in the midst of your weariness, stay prepared, stay ready, stay connected. Is your relationship with God prepared for the long haul? Most of you know that we recently got back from Canada. We went up in the car. It was a 12-hour drive. We did it in one day, five of us in the car, three kids, two adults. 
Um, that's a long day in the car altogether. And when we take road trips, I learned from my dad, who was a colonel in the Air Force. It was kind of like, we're going, we've got a 24-hour car ride today, use the bathroom, I ain't stopping. Right? None of this, I have to use the potty, dad. It's like, get a cup, we go. Like, we hammer. And so... Um, my kids know, like, you empty the bladder and drink as little of water as possible. Um, we just are rolling for 12 hours. But here's the point, right? We knew we had a 12-hour drive. We knew it was going to be a long day in the car. And so we prepared for a long day. My wife had the van filled up with gas the night before. We had water in water bottles along with us. We had snacks for the road. We brought money for, for, few, for food and refueling, right? We prepared. We brought, you know, movies downloaded on our screens so our kids could be entertained and not mess with us. We, we were ready for a 12 hour. I didn't have that stuff when I was a kid. Again, another sermon. We, we were ready for a 12 hour day in the car. Again, friends, let me ask you, do you have the things you need to sustain your journey with Jesus for the long Road ahead. Do you have the prayer life you need? Do you have the fuel of scripture being constantly put into your tank? Do you have the deep, authentic relationships with other Jesus followers to keep you going when things get hard, when there's a bump in the road, when you get a flat tire, when there's mechanical issues along the way? Are you staying in shape by exercising your muscles of faith and trust and serving and sacrifice, do you have the things you need to sustain your journey with Jesus for the long road ahead? You see, Jesus in this story is saying the, the waiting period will be long and some people will not have the endurance to make it. So here's my offer. Here's my encouragement and my challenge. Is there one practice that you might adopt? Is there one practice that you might adopt or readopt or lean back into because you've gotten away from it that will give you fuel for the long road ahead, that will put oil in your lamp, that will keep you connected to Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit? Is there one thing you could commit to implementing into your life, into your daily schedule and routine that will give you fuel, spiritual fuel, Jesus' fuel for the journey? Because let me be honest, I know some of you are trying to walk this long road on one meal a week, on just one church service a week. And uh, we have great church services here. Cedar Mill. Uh, the worship team today, just, just I was blessed and filled. I, I, I went twice. I, I go twice on Sunday. I get two meals, right? And it's not enough. Some of you are trying to get by on one meal a week and some goldfish crackers. Like, I come to church on Sunday, and we say like a pre-meal prayer several times, and that's about it. You can't make it on that. You can't make it on that. You need more. Some of you, you have a struggle in your life, something, Paul calls it a thorn in the flesh, something that keeps plaguing you, that you are fighting, that you are wrestling against, that you want to overcome, something that's a challenge to you, and, and it keeps winning. You're trying to beat it with no fuel in the tank. 
You're trying to beat it on your own strength. And Jesus wants to come and he wants to put fuel in your tank for that battle and that struggle. He wants you to win. But you can't do it on your own. You can't do it on one meal a week. Because here's the first thing, friends, to wisely wait in a broken world. I know it sounds simple and it sounds insignificant, but it's huge. We need fuel for the long road ahead. Your tank's getting fueled up. Here's the second point. It's a quick one. It's related to the first one. It also has to do with the fact that the height of this story, Jesus says, the bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. They all became drowsy and fell asleep. Drowsiness is coming. There's no way to avoid it. And here's what I think Jesus wants us to remember. In the midst of your drowsiness, if you're in a season of weariness, if it's starting to feel long and drawn out and like God may have forgotten you, Jesus wants to say, even when you are tired and weary from this journey, never doubt my love for you. Never doubt that I will return. I know it seems long. I know it seems like longer than you thought or hoped or wished, but I will return for you. Remember that no matter what you're going through. Remember these words that Jesus spoke and remember that he says them to us, to his church, to his people, that Jesus speaks these words to you. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You see, Jesus speaks those words as a husband to his bride, to you and me. Never lose focus that you are part of the bride that Jesus loves and is coming back for. You see, part of what fuels the long road ahead is knowing what's at the end of that road and that it's worth it. And for Christians, it's that our God will someday make all things new. Part of what fuels that long road ahead is knowing that at the end of this road, things are going to be different than they are now. That these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, not on current circumstances or struggles, but on what is unseen. Since Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You don't see him yet. He's not back yet. But when he comes, it will be forever. This is what we call Christian hope. Not like we hope it'll happen. We hope, we're, hope, we're being real optimistic about the results. We hope that the test results will come back this way or that way. Or I really hope that she'll say this. I really hope she'll check yes. I really hope he can change. No, it's not just like maybe there's a chance hope. That's not Christian hope. Christian hope says we have confidence in God and his promises. We have confidence that he will do what he says he will do. That's why Paul says in Romans that our hope, our Christian hope, does not disappoint Or in Ephesians, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. That's our hope. The end of this thing is get all the struggle and pain and misery and difficulty. It's going to be worth it. So to wait wisely in a broken world, we need fuel for the long road ahead. We need a focus on Jesus' promise to return. We need to think about it more because here's one thing I promise you. 
you don't think about it enough. And I know you don't, because I don't either. And then here's number three. I'll close with this. The third thing, I'll offer it with a question, sort of a provocative question. I think that this story raises in us. Why don't they share? I mean, like, why don't the five bridesmaids who have oil share with the five? I mean, it doesn't seem like a very Jesus-y thing to do. I mean, isn't sharing like the basic Jesus fundamental value? Don't we teach our kids this? And yet, these five bridesmaids who get in the, into the banquet at the end, they don't even share. I mean, listen to this. At midnight, the cry rang out. And now we know what that cry is, right? Like, here he comes. The bridegroom's coming. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. By the way, that trimmed their lamps just literally means they trimmed off the burnt parts of the, of the cloth. They trimmed that off, and then they poured more oil on and relit their torches. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. Right? Like, it sounds so mean and selfish and valley girlish or something. Like, I imagine them like <laughs> snotty girls. And, mm, I don't think that's how Jesus meant it. But so, what is Jesus saying here? Is Jesus saying here that we, that we should not be generous people? That we shouldn't help those, we shouldn't help other people get into the kingdom? Get into the kingdom yourself, right? Now, of course, he's, of course he's not saying this. The question is, what does this oil represent? That these five have and these other five don't. Well, Jesus tells us in this story. He tells us in this story that the oil represents relationship with him. Listen to, listen to what he says in the end to those who don't have oil. You can't get in, right? Like, you can't get in. Why? Truly, I tell you, I don't know you. You see, the message here is relationship with Jesus is what matters. Relationship with Jesus is what he is after for you. Relationship with Jesus is at the very center of what it means to be a follower of Christ. You know, I say it all the time here. We have a wonderful team of elders in this church a group that just follows God with passion and um, vigilance and I think in a real humble, honest, righteous way. Not perfect, not perfect, but just a, a wonderful group. And one of our elders is a guy named Doug Crane. He was here in the first service and he was sitting right there. And Doug is just one of these guys who will always remind our team that at the very center of who we are and what we're about and how we live and how we act and how we even read and apply scripture is this truth. We are people called into a relationship with Jesus, that we must first and foremost be about that, that we must be fueled by that. And it's a good word. And that's what Jesus says here. He says, what you need, what I've come to offer, what I long for you to have is Relationship with me. I want to know you. You know, recently I've been watching, I've been re-watching actually, uh, the TV sitcom Seinfeld. Any Seinfeld fans out there? 
Yeah. Well, and Seinfeld, if you don't know, um, is a TV show. It's about some friends who hang out and do goofy stuff and make bad choices and act like bad people. But it's a really funny show. Um, and in one episode I watched recently, three of the main characters, George and Jerry and Elaine, all have plans to go out to the movies and to dinner together. And then at the last minute, something comes up and Jerry can't go. Do you remember this episode? Jerry can't go. He has to back out. And now it's just George and Elaine. And here's the deal. George and Jerry are really good friends. And Elaine and Jerry are really good friends. But George and Elaine, and they kind of all function together as a group. When Jerry's around, it all sort of seems like they're all together. But all of a sudden now in this episode, Jerry's out of the picture and they go out to the movies and dinner together. And what they discover is it's super awkward. They don't have anything to talk about. They don't really know each other that good. In fact, their entire relationship is kind of through Jerry. And it creates this really funny moment and and it's awkwardly hilarious. But the problem is this, friends. Some of us are this way with Jesus. And that's not funny. Some of us go to gatherings where Jesus is sung about and talked about. But we don't know him. We We hang around with others who are friends with Jesus, but we don't know him. We associate with people who are really close to him, but we don't know him. We know some things about him, but we don't know him. And from the outside looking in, friends, no one would guess it. It looks like we're all friends, but maybe if we're honest, we don't have personal relationship. And I have to tell you, this is so key. Jesus does not want to just kind of associate with you. He is not interested in being friends through friends. Jesus does not come and say, good news, there's great news for you. You can now be a member of a club that talks about me and studies my teachings. No, Jesus says, here is what I long for you to know. I want to be familiar with you and I want you to be familiar with me. I want deep, personal, intimate, growing connection with you. That is what I am after. That is what I long for. That is why I will give my life. To wisely wait in the broken world, we need fuel for the long road ahead. A focus on Jesus' promise to return and familiarity with the one who gives us strength. And you know, friends, if we go back to point one and talk about That fuel, those things we do to put fuel in our tank, every single one of those things, they're not religious activities. They're not things to check off the list. They are things to help us get to know our Savior more. Because it's all about relationship with him. Jesus warns about this time and time again. He says, amongst my followers, amongst my followers, amongst people who come and sit every single week in church, there are some in here, they're just going through the motions. They're just connected with me through other people and at the end, I do not know them. One of the most tragic things that might happen is for Jesus to come to you and at the end say, yeah, you did a lot of churchy things. Yeah, you even gave some money. Yeah, you even volunteered at Royal Family Kids Camp, but I didn't know you. Pastor Dave, you gave some sermons. You gave some altar calls. You baptized people. You were super religious, but I don't know you. I never knew you. How tragic that would be. God, may it not be so. May it not be so for anyone in this room. Because 
that's the invitation. The invitation is to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, to be a Jesus follower, is to be someone in relationship with Christ. And Jesus came and he died to enable that relationship, the, the very thing, our sin, our brokenness that separates us from relationship with God, Jesus came to, he came to break that separation, to annihilate that thing that would prevent us from having relationship with the living God. And he did it on the cross. And that's why every single week we come together, we come to these tables, we take the bread, we take the cup, and we declare it again. Our God loves us so much, he longs for relationship with us so much that he gave his very life, that he hung on a cross, that his blood was spilled, that we might be restored in relationship with our heavenly father, that we might know him. And so the relation, or so the offer is here today, again, again, the offer is, is made to you. Do you know Jesus? Do you want to know Jesus? Do you want to receive the gift of walking in relationship to him? Do you want to come and say, yeah, Jesus, be my Lord, be my Savior, be my friend, be my life companion, and you begin to change me? You see, this meal is, is a chance to make that decision again or maybe for the first time to say, I receive what you did for me, a broken sinner, and you know all about me, God. You know how messed up I am, and yet you still gave your life, and you still want to know me, and you invite me into relationship. If you want to step into relationship today, again, still, or for the first time, Jesus says, come to the table, take the bread, take the cup, receive the elements, and walk with me. Let's know each other in this life. Let's do life together. Let me pray. Father, this morning I pray for people in this room who have known you a long time, but they've drifted away and there's not familiarity anymore and there's been a separation, Lord, that you would call them back into that regular, consistent relationship. And then, Lord, I pray for those maybe who've never received Christ as Savior or Lord, who've never walked with you, Lord, that you would give them the humility, the confidence, the courage to take that step and make that declaration as we come to these tables, that they would say, I'm a sinner, I'm separated from God, but I long to be with them, my soul longs to be with them. And so, Jesus, I receive what you've done to connect me back to God and yourself. Lord, we thank you for this teaching. We thank you for just how you know how to speak to the hearts of those of us who are a bit religious and who can wander away from the things that matter. We say, Jesus, be glorified, be Lord, be King in our midst. Continue to pull us to yourself. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Tables are open whenever you're ready.